you can follow along as I uh, read. This is Acts chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 8. And uh, here's uh, what Dr. Luke has to say in Acts chapter 8. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Let's, uh, let's pray this morning, shall we? Uh, Lord, we're grateful for the privilege to be here today. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for these uh, beautiful fall days that we're enjoying here in, in Michigan. Uh, thank you for that, Lord. And we just uh, pray that you would uh, guide us now as we look into your word. Um, Lord, we do pray for some in our church family that um, need our encouragement and prayers today. We uh, Bless us now as we look into your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're looking at uh, the book of Acts, and uh, the book of Acts is kind of transition book. It's between the Gospels and then uh, transition through the, the rest of the New Testament, uh, written by Dr. Luke. And uh, it's interesting that, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, that Dr. Luke wrote more of the New Testament than the Apostle Paul did. The Apostle Paul wrote more books, but by volume, Dr. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and uh, uh, that by volume is actually more than what the Apostle Paul wrote. So uh, just a little bit of background and introduction. The key verse in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And actually, we find the outline of the entire book in Acts 1.8. Let me read the verse to you. Uh, here's uh, the words of, of Jesus before he ascended to heaven. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Well, there's the outline of the book of Acts. So the first seven chapters have to do with the gospel being proclaimed in Jerusalem. That's where the early church started. Day of Pentecost, and Peter preaches a sermon, and 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus. That's the first seven chapters. And, and then we transition to chapters 8 through 12, where the gospel goes to Judea and Samaria. That's where we're going to be this morning. And then the last half of the book, chapters 13 through 28, the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. And how does that happen? Well, um, God uses a man by the name of Saul, who we just read about, who was the chief persecutor of the church, transformed his life, and he became the great missionary of the church. And uh, we read about three missionary journeys, and the gospel makes it to the ends of the earth. Um, I want you to know this morning that sometimes we get a little microscopic view of the gospel, but the gospel is making its way around the world this morning. And there are very many places in faraway places where missionaries have gone and uh, they've received the, the gospel. We support about 12 missionary families here at Community Bible Church. And uh, you won't be able to see this, but this is a, a picture we've had back at our missions table. This is from Mark and Holly Woodard. Um, we've supported them for a number of years and their family. Uh, they've spent lots of time in a very remote village in Papua New Guinea 
Here's an aerial picture of it. This is the Mariama people. And did you know in this remote village in Papua New Guinea, there's a church there? Did you know there is a Christian school there that is educating Papua New Guinea children in a Christian education because Mark and Holly were faithful, answered God's call, and uh, was willing to go to a faraway place to share the gospel? I uh, recently got a Facebook uh, message from uh, our friends uh, Jay and Jill Williamson, Went to college with Jay and Jill at Cedarville University a long, long time ago. Uh, Jay and Jill have five children. Uh, their son and daughter-in-law uh, went to New Tribes Bible Institute, now known as Ethnos 360, and uh, they've been in Papua New Guinea for a number of years. And uh, uh, Jason and Nisei, and they have five children. And recently, Jill posted this, and I just thought I'd share this with you because it, it just encourages my heart that the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. And so we'll scroll, scroll through some pictures here. This is the Ramu Valley Bible Conference in Papua New Guinea, hosted by the KJ Church. So four churches in this valley and remote place in Papua New Guinea got together, and they had a Bible conference. It was the Inapong Church, the Iski people, where uh, J- Jason and Nase work, the Tanguat and the KJ. So here's here's the uh, description. This last weekend, this was two weekends ago, was the third annual Ramu Valley Bible Conference hosted by the KJ Church. Around 200 Iski people hiked. Get this, hiked 11 hours to attend. I don't think anybody here drove 11 hours to come here this morning. <laughs> They hiked 11 hours to get to this Bible conference. Others hiked four hours and six hours. The KJ Church hosted and fed everyone for several days. We estimate roughly 800 people were gathered for the weekend to listen to relevant church topics. These were all being taught by Bible teachers from each church represented. There were groups from each church lending times of, leading times of singing. There were joys and struggles shared from each church and times of prayer for them. Needless to say, this conference was a huge time of encouragement and blessing for everyone. Uh, the gospel's going everywhere. And uh, thank God for some uh, missionaries that have heard God's call in their life and are willing to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And who knows what God will do in the lives of these four young people that put their faith in Jesus. You know, sometimes for us as parents and grandparents, the call to the mission field isn't even on our radar screen. Maybe God's going to call one of them to go to a faraway place to fulfill a commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You know what missionary people tell me what the greatest holdback in that is? And I can relate to this, having uh, children and grandchildren. It's moms and dads who aren't willing to allow their children to follow God's call wherever God calls them to be and don't want to live halfway around the world from their grandparents and their parents. And it's not easy, but it's worth worth the cost if that's what God is calling them to do. So uh, let's look at Acts chapter 8 this morning. And we're just going to go through a brief outline and then a few application points. And then uh, we'll hopefully finish in about a half hour here. So uh, let's look at Saul and the great persecution. And that's where we started uh, our scripture this morning. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, what, what day is he referring to? The day that Stephen was martyred. 
If you're here last week, we, we looked at the story of the, the first Christian martyr. His name was Stephen. And uh, they, they murdered him. They killed him. They stoned him for his, his message that they shared. Uh, so it was on that day, it says, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. You would think that persecution would stifle the growth of the church, but historically we discover that persecution strengthens the church. And historically, wherever there has been persecution, excuse me, the church has grown. Uh, Think about China with me for just a little bit. Here's what they have to say about Christians in China. Over the past four decades, Christianity has grown faster in China than anywhere else in the world. China has witnessed a religious revival over the past four decades. The number of Chinese believers has grown by an average of 10% annually since 1979. By some estimates, China is on track to have the world's largest population of Christians by 2030. They estimate almost a quarter of a billion 247 million Christians in China, far more than there are in the United States of America. And why is that happening? It's happening because of persecution and the underground church, and there's great growth in the church in China. So on that day, a great persecution breaks out. That's uh, uh, Saul and the great persecution. Let's look at Stephen's burial, verse 2. It says, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Now let's not rush over that. They mourned deeply for him. You know, that's something all of us are going to face, and some of us already have, uh, the loss of someone very close to us, dear to us. I mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, about three months ago, Diane and I stood by the graveside of uh, parent number five. My mom died young. My dad remarried. We've mourned the loss of five parents. Uh, all of us will be there at some point in time. Someone said, grief is the price we pay for love. Grief is the price we pay for love. So let's just think about grief just for a, a little bit. Grieving is a highly individualized experience. There's no right or wrong way to grieve. How you grieve depends on many factors, including your personality, your life experience, and your faith. That's First Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul's writing to Christians, like, don't grieve like those who have no hope, because we have hope of seeing our loved ones again someday if they're in Christ. It also depends on how significant the loss was to you. So how to deal with the grieving process, just very quickly, acknowledge your pain Someone has said you can't leave it till you grieve it. And uh, we can't stuff that pain. We have, to, we have to acknowledge it. Secondly, accept that grief can trigger many difficult and unexpected emotions. We like to be in control of our emotions. But sometimes when we lose a loved one close to us, those emotions will just rise on us very, very quickly. And it's, it's, it's the process of grief. Thirdly, seek face-to-face support from people who love and care about you. Do not try to go through the grief process alone. And this is part of the, the, the benefit of being in the body of Christ, to help others uh, pray for you and encourage you and walk you through your, your grief. And number four, take care of yourself physically. And lastly, recognize the difference between grief and depression. 
Well, Stephen is buried, and uh, that leads us to the scattering. That's verses 3 and 4. How did the gospel move out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria? Persecution. Jerusalem became a dangerous place to be a Christian. And so the people left as refugees. Verse 3, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And so Saul's going from home to home. He's looking for Christians. And when he finds them, he takes them and he puts them into prison. And so the church scatters and they go to Judea and they go to Samaria. And uh, what happens? Verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So here's the first missionary movement. God used persecution to move Christians out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And wherever they went, what did they do? They shared the gospel. People came to faith in Christ. Um, I love what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1. Paul's in prison. He's in prison because he's preached the gospel. And he's writing a letter to the church in Philippi. And here's what he writes in Philippians 1.12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Paul says, yeah, I've been put in prison, and it's not a fun place to be, but guess what? This is all part of God's plan, and God's working through difficult circumstances to advance the gospel. And Paul says, "Um, I've got four Roman guards that I'm preaching to on every eight-hour shift. And now the gospel is known in uh, the Roman uh, elite guard, and guess what? Others are bold to share their faith. And so the scattering, God used persecution to move the early church from Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria, and the gospel was advanced. Well, our next uh, part of our outline is Philip preaches in Samaria. And so now we're introduced to Philip. We uh, were introduced to him in Acts chapter 6. Remember, the church needed uh, some help with their Meals on Wheels program, and they needed more volunteers, and so they chose seven men full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit uh, to help them advance this, uh, this missionary outreach through food, and Philip was one of them. And so uh, we're introduced to Philip in verse 5. It says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Notice who he's preaching to. He's preaching to the Samaritans. Anybody remember what the Jews thought of Samaritans? They hated them. The Samaritans were a uh, uh, kind of a mixed breed between Jew and Gentile, and a good Jew wouldn't even walk through Samaria They would go way out of their way so they didn't even have to have any contact with the Samaritans. And Philip, going to preach the gospel to the Samaritans, is a powerful message that the gospel isn't just a Jewish movement. The gospel is for everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, whatever ethnic background a person is, whatever their social economic status is, the gospel is for everyone. And so here we have Philip going to... Cities in Samaria and preaching the gospel. And he's, he's working great miracles and there's great joy in the city. Uh, we know in the New Testament that God authenticated his messengers. He did this in the Old Testament as well by giving them the ability to what? To perform miracles. 
Why did he do that? He wanted to authenticate them. This, this is my messenger, and you need to listen to him. And so Philip preaches in Samaria, and great things are happening in Samaria. Well, now we're introduced to an interesting fellow in the book of Acts, and his name is Simon the Sorcerer, Simon the Magician. He's an interesting character, and uh, we begin to read about Simon and Philip beginning in verse 9, because uh, Simon's kind of following Philip around as he preaches and works these miracles, and people are receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, and uh, Simon's very intrigued by it. And so let's look at it in verse 9. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. So he's, he's working miracles, but he's doing it through sorcery. He's doing it through the evil one. And people are just amazed at what Simon is able to do. It says, they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So now these people that have been following Simon the sorcerer and his bag of magic tricks hear the good news of the gospel. They become believers they put their faith in, in Jesus and they were baptized. And now uh, Simon's uh, group of followers is kind of dwindling a little bit. It says, Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. And so the scriptures say that Simon also believed and was baptized. Now we're going to see in our next point later on in the next section of Scripture that Simon um, tries to give Philip some money to purchase the ability to do the miracles that Philip is doing and uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's interesting, as people have studied this passage, uh, the question is, was Simon a true believer in Jesus? Or did he just have kind of initial belief and then uh, did not really have his faith and trust in Jesus? And quite frankly, the answer to that question is we don't know because only God knows a person's heart. But let's just camp on that for a little bit. Here's the question. Can a person believe in some sense and not be saved? Uh, this article says, Simon the sorcerer in Samaria is said to have believed and was baptized at the preaching of Philip. How? Uh, but here's the question. Others, some say that Simon was truly saved, but had a deficient understanding of the Holy Spirit. Others say that Simon really wasn't a true believer. He was just interested in getting these gifts that, uh, and powers that uh, Philip seemingly had. So um, here's the thought. As I mentioned, God knows a person's heart. So sometimes we are wondering, is a person a, a true follower of Jesus? Just because you say something uh, doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're converted, you believe it. So God knows our hearts. We cannot see the hearts of other people and may often be deceived about our own hearts as well. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, 
Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? The one thing you want to be sure about (laughs) is, have I put my faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Do I know for sure that when I leave this planet Earth that I have a home in heaven and that I'm going to be with him forever? And Jesus said in Matthew 25, many, many, many are going to say in that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, uh, we did great things in your name. And Jesus says to him, I never knew you. I never had a personal relationship with you. So one helpful uh, book in the New Testament that helps us with this is a person, a genuine believer, is the book of 1 John. John writes 1 John, and the purpose of the book is that you should shall know for sure that you, you're going to heaven and you know you have eternal life. And there's three litmus tests that John writes about in 1 John. Uh, the first one is the doctrinal test, and that's found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what John writes. 1 John 5, 1. If you can't find it, you just keep repeating the, the text until you, you get there. Otherwise, it feels awkward. The pastor can't find the passage. Um, here it is. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So here's the test number one for a true believer. You have to know who Jesus Christ is. And uh, the scriptures make it very, very clear who Jesus is. He's, he's the sinless, perfect son of God who came to be our savior. So you have to know some the, the doctrine that, of who Jesus is, that he is the only way to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Salvation is found in no other name. You have to know who Jesus is. Uh, the second one is the moral test, the moral test. So John says a true believer will have some sort of change in their life. This is First John 2, 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. So one of the evidences is a person truly come to faith in Christ is what? They're following the commands of the Bible. Not 100% perfectly, because none of us are perfect, but there's a pattern of obedience in their life. And a person that says they've come to faith in Jesus and they never open their Bible and they never read it and never know what Jesus says and what God asks them to do... Boy, you better, you better examine your life. And then there's a third test of a true believer. So they know who Jesus is. There's a pattern of obedience in their life. That's the moral test. Uh, the fellowship test, the fellowship test. First John chapter four, verse seven. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So the third litmus test is a genuine believer loves other Christians. There's a desire in their heart to um, fellowship with other Christians and and meet the other the needs of, of other Christians' lives, and there's a there's a love in their heart for the family of God. And so fellowship is important, church is important because it's a way that we show our love for God and our love for one another. Well, was Simon the sorcerer, uh, was his faith genuine? Only, only God knows that. But that leads us to our last point here in our, in our outline. 
And um, that has to do with Simon the Sorcerer and Peter. Simon the Sorcerer and Peter. Uh, let's uh, quickly read through some of the text here. We're back in Acts chapter 8. Uh, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the Samaria, that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. So now the gospel's moving out from Jerusalem and uh, headquarters is a little concerned. And so they send a couple of the apostles from Jerusalem. Hey, you better go down and check out what's happening in Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So here's Simon. He's given Peter and John money. He says, hey, I, I want to be able to do this. Peter's answer, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord and hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages as well. Well, let's just camp on this just for a a little bit. Uh, There's a lot in that uh, section there. We don't have time to go through all of it. But isn't it interesting that... uh, that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And that's the beginning of the church. But here, there's believers in Samaritan that have put their faith in Jesus, but it says they haven't received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter and John come and lay hands on them, and they receive the, 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 Holy, the Holy Spirit. The fan keeps blowing my notes off here. I'll, I'll get it straight here. Uh, Let me just give an illustration of of what's happening here. And um, if you remember in history, the Emancipation Proclamation by President Lincoln. He issued that on September 22nd, 1862. And his proclamation was that on January 1st, 1863, there's no more slavery. Slavery is to be over with. And while he made that proclamation... Uh, and so officially on January 1st, 1863, slavery was illegal. That message did not get uh, widely spread until almost a couple years later. In other words, there were people who were living as slaves had not found out the fact that Lincoln freed the slaves. It wasn't until June 19th, 1865, two and a half years later, after he announced the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, began on that January 1st when the last Confederate community of slaves in Galveston, Texas received word that they had been freed from slavery. So the proclamation was made officially two and a half years earlier and it took two and a half years until the last slaves in Galveston, Texas realized we don't have to live as slaves anymore. 
And by the way, that's why we have the new federal holiday, Juneteenth. What's what's Juneteenth all about? It's it's about June nineteenth, eighteen sixty five, when the when they finally the last slaves found out we're no longer slaves, we are freedmen. That's a little bit what's happening here with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes, it came at Pentecost, but it was a kind of a progressive thing as as people found out about the the Spirit of God coming and dwelling in them. It happened progressively, and that's uh, what's happening here. Uh, in our text. Well, Simon tries to buy this gift with money, and uh, Peter sets him straight and uh, tells him, you, you need to repent because this isn't a good thing. And so uh, the gospel continues to go on as they preach in, in Samaria. Well, very quickly here, we're going to wrap this up. Just three life lessons from Acts chapter 8 um, from this passage this morning, Acts chapter 8. Here's the first one, and this should be an encouragement to us, that no one is beyond the grace of God. No one is beyond the grace of God. Uh, Here is Saul in Acts chapter 8, and he is uh, trying to destroy the church. He is chief enemy number one of the church. And what happens, and we'll look at it, uh, Acts chapter 9, shortly, what happens, Saul on the road to Damascus to try to uh, arrest more Christians, um, meets Jesus face to face. And his life is transformed, and Saul becomes the apostle Paul, and he becomes the great missionary of the faith, and he writes uh, half of our New Testament, and God uses him in great ways because No one or no sin is beyond the grace of God. Listen how Paul describes his own, his own testimony here. Um, in 1 Timothy 2, or actually chapter 1, verse 13, even though I was once a blasphemer, he blasphemed Christianity, I was a persecutor, I was a violent man, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with a faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. For this very reason I was shown mercy, for that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul says, I was chief sinner number one, and God forgave me. And so the good news of the grace of God is that no one's beyond the grace of God. I don't care what kind of sin anyone has committed, how horrific it is, murder, rape, adultery, whatever the most heinous sin you can think of, no sin is beyond the grace of God. And there's a certain truth that um, I, I believe is true, that he who has been forgiven much loves much. And we realize the depths of God's forgiveness in our life, and that should prompt us to love more and more uh, what Christ has done for us and the grace of God. Secondly, uh, God specializes in using difficult circumstances to accomplish his plan and purpose. God specializes in using difficult circumstances to accomplish his plan and his purpose. So what was God's purpose and plan? That the gospel get to the ends of the earth. Excuse me. How does God accomplish that? Difficult circumstances, 
persecution, Christians fearing a knock on their door and it's uh, Saul and his cronies and they're going to come and throw you in jail. And so God uses difficult circumstances to accomplish his plan and his purpose. Isaiah writes about it in Isaiah 55. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God says, you can't understand me. You can't figure me out. I'm the omniscient one. And I often use difficult circumstances to accomplish my plan and my purpose. So here's what the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 167. The psalmist writes these words, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. I don't think I've got the right verse in that, but it's in Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. It's Psalm 119, verse, verse 67. Isn't that interesting that the psalmist says, hey, um, I kind of was doing my own thing, and then some pain and pressure came into my life, and now i am um, decided to, to go God's way and to follow his word. And that's often true in our lives, that God allows difficult circumstances to come into our life, not because he wants to harm us, but really because he loves us. He wants to get our attention. He wants us to put our faith in him as his Lord and Savior and give him first place in our life. And so God specializes in using difficult circumstances to accomplish his plan and purpose. That theme is all through the Bible. Uh, Just think of the life of Joseph. Hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold as a slave, um, accused, falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife, and ends up in prison, forgotten in prison, and then God elevates him, and God uses Joseph as the number two man in Egypt to do great things and to accomplish God's plan and God's purpose. So God specializes in using difficult circumstances to accomplish his plan and purpose. Here's the last one, number three. The gifts of God cannot be purchased. The gifts of God cannot be purchased. This is where Simon the sorcerer was um, totally off track. He thought he could pay some money to Philip and say, hey, I want to have that power that you have. And uh, Peter said, you know, may your money perish with you because the gifts of God cannot be purchased. That's true of the gift of salvation. Scripture is very clear. Psalm 49, no one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom of a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. So there's no way we can buy our way into heaven. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 4, by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. And so we simply need to receive it. We, we cannot buy our way to heaven. I love Romans 4, 4 and 5. Here's how uh, Paul puts it in Romans 4. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. So you don't, you, you don't get a paycheck at the end of the week and tell your employer, well, thank you for the gift. <laughs> no, that's contractually owed to you. So the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. 
However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. To the one who does not work, but trusts in God for salvation, what happens? It says their faith is credited as righteousness. And that's the gospel, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us so that in him, when we put our faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And so when we put our faith in Jesus, the perfection of God and Jesus gets credited to our account. And God looks at us and sees us as justified, sees us as our standing before him as righteous. The gifts of God cannot be purchased. So I trust this morning you've received the gift of salvation. It's simple. A simple gospel message. It takes just childlike faith, as we saw this morning. Not only can salvation not be purchased, but lastly, uh, the gift of the Spirit cannot be purchased. In other words, sanctification, and the Bible talks about the fact that when we become a believer in Christ, we get spiritual gifts that God bestows on us, and those can't be purchased either. They are sovereignly given by uh, Jesus himself, and our job is to discover and develop those gifts and use them for his kingdom, but uh, they cannot be purchased. Well, that's the story of Acts chapter 8, and uh, that's how the gospel moved from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and God used persecution to do it. And as the believers left Jerusalem, wherever they went, they shared the good news, and the gospel begins to spread. And as we'll continue to go through the book of Acts, we'll discover that uh, through the changed life of the Apostle Paul, The gospel goes to the ends of the earth. And God wants to use each of us in a small part of that plan there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. It was two years ago that we had the privilege of uh, doing what we call the Acts 1-8 campaign. And God had uh, blessed us financially, and so we began to think and pray about what can we do with those uh, funds that God has entrusted to us. And so we implemented something called the Acts 1-8 campaign, and we chose some missionaries, some that were local, some that were statewide, some that were at the other, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we were able to give $30,000 to uh, encourage those missionaries with their task. And I don't know if you remember that Sunday a couple years ago, but we had uh, five or six different mission agencies that were on this platform that were very humbled and grateful that we as a church would partner with them to advance the good news of the gospel. And that's our plan and purpose here as well, to take the gospel right here where God has planted us. So let's pray this morning, shall we? Lord, thank you for um, all that you have done uh, in our lives. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that uh, Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are forgiven. Uh, We thank you for for Christ and what he's done. Lord, I pray that um, we too would be uh, challenged to uh, be an Acts 1-8 believer, that we would take the gospel uh, not only where you've planted us in our workplace and in our communities, but to partner with others to take the gospel to the 
to the ends of the earth. And then, Lord, we're thankful for the grace of God, that there's no one who is beyond your forgiveness and your grace. Thank you for the change in the life of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the change in our lives. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.